1: Welcome to Pick A Flick, a weekly film podcast where you pick a film and we talk about it. We can be found on Twitter, uh, at Pick A Flick Pod. We are on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher and Facebook as well. So if you could please go follow us, like us, poke us, leave reviews and genuinely interfere with us in whichever social media platform will let you, that'd be fantastic. I'm Steve Norman, usually a failed critic's. I'm joined by Leslie Pitt of Afrofilm Viewer.
0: Hi, how are you doing? You alright?
1: Yes, good, thank you. So, yes, we're going to, as always, do on Pick a Flick, go through a few films selected by yourselves, the listeners. So, let's pick a flick. Zero Dark Thirty is a 2012 American action thriller film directed by Catherine Bigelow and written by Mark Boll, uh, billed as the story of history's greatest manhunt for the world's most dangerous man. The film dramatises a decade-long manhunt for al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in the United States. This search eventually leads to the discovery of his compound in Pakistan and a military raid that resulted in bin Laden's death on May the 2nd. 2011 and this film was chosen for us by Teresa and I'm going to apologise if I butcher your surname Votipakova I may well have got that wrong
2: <laughs> I think he did okay but we'd have to wait and see what um, she says <laughs> yes
1: in future reference if you have a difficult surname please uh, send us a phonetic spelling of it so we can get it right and not insult your, your good selves
3: I want to make something absolutely clear if you thought there was some secret cell somewhere working Al Qaeda then I want you to know that you're wrong this is it there's no working group Coming to the rescue. There's nobody else hidden away on some other floor. There is just us. And we are failing. We're spending billions of dollars. People are dying. We are still no closer to defeating our enemy. They attacked us on land in 98 by sea in 2000 and from the air in 2001 they murdered 3000 of our citizens in cold blood and they have slaughtered our forward deployed and what the fuck have we done about it huh what have we done We have 20 leadership names. We've only eliminated four of them. I want targets. Do your fucking jobs. Bring me people to kill.
1: Uh, Zero Dark Thirty, then, obviously set, as we mentioned, uh, the manhunt for Osama bin Laden. Um, Very well-received film, and it was uh, nominated for five different Oscars. Uh, at the eighty-fifth Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress for Jessica Chastain, Best Original Screenplay, and some of the more technical awards. Are we fans of the film? I love the film
2: personally. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of the film. I I remember when it when it came out, and I found myself very sort of moved by by it, considering what it's about, and in, and how it gets to its end, and and all those aspects of it I think it's a very dark dark film in terms of what it you know and what it talks about and how how it's how it's written so to speak and how it was researched and the sort of fallout that came out of that and when Ball wrote wrote the film and and uh, him and, he and Bigelow were doing all this research and they were researching it before Ben Laden was um, caught and captured and then there was um, script changes and rewrites because of it and there was a whole bunch of fallout and there was many, many articles write, written about it saying they can't do this because of things that you see at the beginning of the film. I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of the film, I think there is an element of truth in there that we don't want to face um, maybe it, there's lots of people going it's, it says, signals that water tort, um, waterboarding was and, and torture was a way of finding Bed-Laden but what you actually find out is it only, it doesn't really give you too much hints But also, these things are actually happening, and if they did give any hints, you get the feeling there's a whole bunch of people that don't want anyone to find out and know for sure what actually happened. I think that's the thing I really like about it. It goes through a very murky way of doing things, and it melds fact and fiction in such a way that you feel dirty for watching it, and I think it makes the, the end shot very... Uh, more resonant, so to speak. Um, I know I'm one of the only people that really sometimes feels this because now, four years on, people aren't really talking about the film anymore. But for me, it was one of the best films of that year.
1: What surprised me when just looking into the film and especially reading the introduction we gave to it there was obviously Bin Laden's death, as we mentioned, was the 2nd of May 2011. The film was released in 2012, very close to the actual event. So it must have been written in, maybe they were writing it in advance and, and keeping it updated as it went on or um, but who knows but it's, it just seems quite close to it actually be, to be released um, we know how militaries and governments like to keep certain things under wraps and confidential but you would have thought that the, the screenwriters would want to make this as accurate as possible so you wonder how they managed to do that with it being so close to the event and there probably being in you know, all kinds of inquiries and investigations from from the government as to how it actually happened, how it went down and then kind of 18 months after the event a film's released on the subject.
2: Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where you, you get the feeling that something was put in place as a kind of work of fiction as this was all going along and then real life kind of got in the way. Um, I think it's a kind of... I think I commend the filmmakers to turn around and make something that is as coherent as and as tense as they do, considering that they have to go and do reshoots. You know, we we hear about reshoots all the time, <laughs> and how they kind of, you know, excuse my French, kind of fuck up the film sometimes. <laughs> I, you know, I will I will turn around and um, Steve, your your podcast failed um failed critics. Well one of my favourite episodes is the Fantastic Four episode where we're talk they're talk everyone's talking about the fact that you can see um uh, Kate Mara's wig changing on and off all the time and 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 that aspect of it. One thing I really enjoy about Zero Ducks thirty is it's almost seamless and you still look at it as a work of fiction. I still look at it as a work of fiction with elements of truth kind of thrown in there. Obviously, the the main character played by um, Jessica Chastain is not a real character. I think there was rumours of her maybe being a composite of people, but no, she she is she's not a real character. So therefore, you can't land it in 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 truth, so to speak. But you can say that there are elements that are in, you know elements of truth that inspired the film. I think that's the most interesting thing about it, when we look at that and then you look at it compared to other films, sort of like American Sniper, where, because it's written down as a, a bi- bi- biography, everything, everyone takes it as a sort of element of truth, no matter what, and I can't remember when the, the writer of American Sniper died um, in real life, but no one seems to really question that aspect of it, especially from it's the fact that it's from one perspective, and one very hawkish and right-wing perspective, whereas this, yes, there was kind of things that happened, things that didn't happen, and they had to do a massive turnaround, but there there seemed to be a lot more things, lots more attacks of it trying to derail it, especially from the fact that it was going to be a prestige film and looking towards Oscars. I may be completely wrong, though. I'm I'm not sure. I talk too much, so... <laughs>
1: it's, it's a bit America fuck yeah, isn't it? Mm.
2: I mean, the worrying thing is there was, you know, when we're now in a, the era of Trump, who is very, very quick to tweet and brag and boast and talk about bringing back aspects like waterboarding and everything else like that. And is scary and the strange and the interesting thing is this is a film that shows those tactics and sometimes hints that maybe it, it came to certain find, findings maybe it came to certain red herrings but it hints that those things were done and then you had people like uh, John McCain kind of speaking out against the film going well no and and speaking out against people like Trump as well and and being a prisoner of war and the thing that bothers and scares and worries me about the film and i think that's why it's so interesting is it never never really pertains to whether or not it, you think it's a good thing or not it's just a thing that happened it's very matter of fact um that the um such such a such an aspect May or may not have happened, and we, you know, we know these sort of things weren't out of reach when you look at documentaries like *Taxi to the Dark Side* or any or hear anything about things that were happening or may or may not have happened in Guantanamo. It's a scary aspect, and it's one of those things where you hear from either side, um, both for or against, and did it happen and didn't happen, and it just makes things it just it makes things murky. And I think one of the things that I like about the film that I mentioned again is you're seeing fictional characters interact with things that may have happened and it just puts you on a certain type of edge. You know it's a work of fiction because of certain things, but you also know there is you know, there's there's truth in the fiction that is kinda of scary. I can't think of another film in recent times that kind of mentions uh Seven Seven in the way that this does and I also think one of the things that I find quite interesting is that how it uses these real-life events to punch punctuate where we are in the story and, and what's happening. There's what the one thing about seven, you know, the seven-seven aspect of it, which is a good and a bad thing. You can say it kind of romanticises and glamorises certain aspects of of its usage. But one thing it turns around and says is we need to step this stuff up. There needs to be something to be done, whether or not it's good or bad, something is happening and this is what we need to do and you, the, the thing that I like so much is, is there's all these office, you know, there's lots and lots of men talking in offices and people walking around and talking about where things are and yelling and, and, and bickering and, and trying to suss certain things out but you just get, there's just this element of haste and worry and just the, the you're seeing the nature of what we know as war, like war unravelling in front of our very eyes and you're, you're seeing a whole bunch of people going well how do we deal with this and I think that's what the film gets gets right I don't necessarily need to watch a fictional film to get the facts um, but I do like the idea of you're, you're getting some sort of elements of what um, someone like Herzog would say is an, an ecstatic truth a, a sort of element of Oh my God! You can imagine these people. You know, you can imagine your Rumsfelds and your and and Cheneys going. What the hell are we going to do about this? How are we going to go about this? Is this the right way? We need to sign off on this. And I think that's what makes the film work. Even though you know it's played by, you know, some of the characters are played by guys who were in what was it early edition? If you remember that um short, <laughs> kind of a short-lived um, TV show, Carl Chandler. And also, Chris Pratt turns in it and turns up in it at one point. It was yeah. very
1: strange. The one, the one that threw me the most was, was John Barrowman turning up because at the point I'd seen this, he'd only been as Captain Jack Harkness in Doctor Who and a very camp person on British TV, and he turns up in kind of although it's a very small role, like kind of some super serious military role. That's John Barrowman. <laughs> this, this just isn't right. <laughs> This isn't the John Barrowman that
2: I know. Uh, for me, it was seeing people like Mark DePlace turn up, and you just kind of question wh- what you've just seen. Knowing who Mark Duplass is, and knowing that he's this guy that kind of does these mumblecore movies, and um, and for most people, they may have just watched him on Netflix in the league, and he kind of just turns up in this film, and you go, "Oh, what? Uh, but the thing that I think I really enjoy about it is it's very is cast very well um, it's cast with an eye for what you would imagine the people what people in this position would be like as opposed to stars and I think that's quite important I think that's something that we sometimes miss from um, from many films because obviously there's a commercial aspect that needs to go through with it but what did you think of the last sequence the uh, the actual the the actual spoilers storm and and kind of raid it, it was
1: quite gripping wasn't it and quite gripping and exciting it was I mean for for a war film there wasn't much warring going on for a lot of zero dark thirty was all kind of uh, a lot of build up to trying to find out where Bin Laden was and all the kind of politics involved in in getting missions and things signed off and planning on what they're going to do and then the last bit was kind of all out action which kind of very tense very gripping of all filmed in the dark and you know night vision and and that kind of thing it was it all looked very exciting
2: yeah i mean i can see what you mean in terms of uh, the aesthetic they they do have that sort of similar similar thing um i wouldn't put the, i wouldn't put the two together in terms of for me i wouldn't put the two together in terms of ranking them i for me they both do very well in the things that they need to do um Although they do have similar messages that that these wars that are fighting, be it against terrorism or, or drugs, we are left in the dark for so long, <laughs> and we have no idea, and sometimes it may be better for us not to know, even though morally we may feel a bit dirty. I'm a big, big fan of how these films look. Um, I think there's a crispness and there's a very stark, you know, it's not high contrast, but it's very contrasted, bright and dark aspects that go through it. There's that fantastic moment in in this where you've got, I can't remember, I think it's one of the leads that they're chasing, and there's people in kind of in in burkas and saris, all kind of closing in. All these just shadows coming towards this one person, and it just—it's. I just think it's a really effective way of doing it, and it's edited so crisply and cleanly in order to kind of to to, to do that. I mean, even when you're in the in in down in the, the humdrums and the murkiness and the the night vision, I feel that the, the geography of this is sublime. Like you know what's happening, you know where people are, you know who you're looking at, um, and you know why you're looking at them. You know it's one of those things that I've always loved about having a director like Catherine Biglow. She is an underrated action director. Um, she her films she doesn't make too many of them, but they, they seem to be more talk, talked about in terms of cult as opposed to anything else, as opposed to someone like uh, John Matarian or or the like, and, you know, everyone laughs at how cheesy Point Break is, and everyone kind of, you know, and only horror fans really talk about near dark, but I think, action-wise, she really knows how to do geography, she really knows how to, to make the actions sing, so to speak. You wait you've so long, and it's all this talk and talk and talk about this, and then there's a, you know, there's this heavily done night see- sequence, and then afterwards you're supposed to feel cathar- this moment of catharsis and then she, she pulls it back and I think that's really expertly done, the idea that, you know, morally you should feel conflicted. I think that's really hard to do and I think... Some people kind of take that for granted and going back to what we were mentioning before about the fact that this was kind of, you know, there was 18 months and then there was rewrites as well. The idea that you can still get that sort of emotional um, resonance is quite, quite a tribute to her as a director.
1: he was up for best picture, best actress for Ch- uh, Jessica Chastain, best original screenplay and a couple of the, like, the technical awards as well, best sound editing and that kind of thing. She was nominated for a Golden Globe as Best Director.
2: She's in nearly every every scene of this movie, and it's it's one of those things. And where it's about two and a half hours, and she she makes sure that you remember who she is. Um, the, she does show her, you know, elements of femininity in there, as well as the fact that she's a she's a badass and she wants to make sure this job gets done well. And it's one of those things on where when. I'm reading all these, um, all these blogs and articles about th- uh, like aspects of diversity and and, pe- and and women behind the camera, and I think it helps show. I think a film like this helps show what a woman behind the camera, like Catherine Bigelow can, Bigelow, can do. Because sure, she worked very hard with Chastain to try and get the right balance of of this uh, of this woman being so driven and yet. In such a strange, strange situation, I don't think you could have have a man do this at times. I think the idea of having a, a woman as the lead works and works really well. But then again, you know, I I kind of expect that from someone like like Bigelow, who's done stuff like this in um, in films like Blue Steel with um, Jamie Lee Curtis. Once again, just another film that is really stylish kind of forgotten now but has some interesting elements and definitely worth seeing and i think once again when she when bigelow directs men she d- directs them really well but it's when she directs women and she makes them so driven and 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 work like it's almost like a michael mann film at times she she you get these inner lives and how they haven't got time for these niceties that we always expect Women to have in in hidden films, and I think that I think it really shows and I think it really works well. Um, she shows a different side of of femininity that just doesn't get seen enough
1: um, should we move on to kind of a wider discussion on modern war films and probably to, to clarify, it's, it's films set in modern wars rather than war films made, from any war, made recently. So you're kind of looking, I suppose, the Afghan war post-9-11 onwards. For me, the most noticeable thing about these things is you really can notice how war has changed between, say, World War II and then later Vietnam to how war is fought now. You can if you if you say say watch something like Saving Private Ryan and then watch uh say Apocalypse Now and then watch something like Zero Duck Thirty or Jarhead or American Sniper, you really get a sense of the way that war has changed and the way wars are fought fought.
2: Yeah, I I also think um the interesting thing is kind of morally and tactically how these wars have completely changed. Um, one of my favourite um, war films is an anti-war film is Kubrick's um, Path of Glory and the whole point, of that is, uh, whole point of that film is you're seeing Kirk Douglas um, caught in a catch-22 that he knows that he's damned if he do it does, damned if he doesn't. It's a suicide mission. You're not seeing that so much in... Modern war films, because of the nature of the tech um, <laughs> as simple as that I mean we bring, you know if we bring up jarhead the the thing that makes Jarhead so interesting is they 're looking back at all these old war films and old wars and going hang on this isn 't what we 've signed up for. we expected to fight, we expected to see certain things, and they don 't see that that 's not there anymore the grunt 's work is kind of changed it 's different now. I find that to be quite interesting, um, and I find it to be the, mo- the kind of driving force that we are now more te- 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 technologically advanced. That a we can um, we can see how wars have just changed, and how that conflicts with people in say stuff like um, Jarhead, but also how because of the amount of information and being in this age of information you see films like Green Zone and how you're fighting for warheads that may or may not be there and it's quicker and easier and people can get landed in it quicker and we can go to war quicker and there doesn't seem to be There doesn't seem to be any sort of treaties or anything else like it in the way that we we do go to war. I'm sure there probably is. Um, I'm sure there's probably lots and lots of conversations on whether or not we do that, but it seems to happen at record speed um, as opposed to when we look into the past. And the thing I absolutely love about certain modern war films is they... They they make the whole thing murky. My big issue with the likes of American Sniper, uh, that we've kind of hinted on before, is just how gung ho they make things, and just how pa- how that patriotism is quite kind of misplaced. I find that v- I find it find it very very troubling. When I was writing a, about um, American Sniper and and googling. Uh, certain, uh, about certain reactions, and seeing some of the hate-filled tirades and tweets by people, basic, because but obviously it was based on a certain true story, this guy, this guy turned up, and he did, he did the talk shows, and everything else like that, and he, he made the book that came out, and no matter what Clint Eastwood was trying to do with that movie, I think the message didn't show, I think what happened was there was a lot of people that kind of got very very rah about it and um, that was quite troubling if there's anything about modern modern war movies and we're seeing a a pattern of this happen with Lone Survivor um, American Sniper and then we had um, recently um, Michael Bay's Benghazi um, film uh, that came out um this January, and they all seem to come out around january, and they all get and and an reactions to it from from a general audience is you can 't say anything bad about this because patriotism.
1: I suspect this is even worse in america yeah it's it's well, if 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 you're if this was say an American podcast with American people contributing I'm not saying that a proper film reviewer would have that as an issue but General public in America, when they're just talking between friends and whatever, if they said, I didn't really like a, a American Sniper because it was a bit, you know, it was a, it was a bit so and so, then their buddies might go, Well, that's a bit unpatriotic. You know, it's about America and how good we are and how we're fighting a, a good war for the American people and for freedom and everything. How can you not like this film?
2: Mm. And it's also important to realize that in films like American Sniper, it, it does kind of confuse it confuses the two wars the Afghanistan War and the um war in Iran to, to try and it fudges those two wars and kind of makes them into one to have the character be a drive um, to drive towards going back and and serving and that 's a kind of troubling aspect of of, of what 's going on um, you know for all the issues that come with something like zero dark 30 at least it was trying to be quite clear and and punctuating certain aspects it goes down to the you know one one road it's about ben laden and these are all coming from from seemingly one source it doesn't confuse two wars um you know it's 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 more about one aspect not the other that's the you know that's kind of worrying that we that and that um so many people didn't get so gung-ho... and patriotic about 0.30... mostly because it was trying to... I don't know... give more of an element of truth... whether or not you believe it does... Um, um, whereas... you know... the lone survivor things... and everything else like that... it's a little bit like how I feel about... police and... Uh, a police especially in America... where you can't say anything bad about what they what they do... even though they do make mistakes... You're not allowed to say that um because if, if you say that you're considered you you keep seem to forget all the other good works. It's like no, it's very worrying the fact that um um constructive criticism of these establishments and, and these authoritative establishments are are lost, especially when you watch them in um films which kind of blur fiction and um and truth. I think it's important to, you know, it's not just about the catharsis of violence. It's about saying, how can we stop this stuff from happening? But I don't know. That's that's me being um, far too left wing for my own good.
1: I mean, I suppose it depends on, on the kind of film you're telling. If you're telling something really, you know, in a really serious way, something that's going to be up for an Oscar like Hurt Locker or like American Sniper or Zero Dark 30. Then you do have to really watch how you're portraying your message. If you're doing something like the the Michael Bay film, Benghazi, then you know, he just wants guns and explosions. As he as is his want. There's probably not much of a message to the way that war is fought and morals in that film. It's probably like we're goodies, they're baddies.
3: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Guns, explosions, done.
2: The interesting thing is, is he... I haven't seen um, Benghazi as of yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if Bay shoots and portrays everything similar to how he portrays the army and everything in transformers he I mean, he's a very straight cut director and um despite his you know his talk about being kind of apolitical in his films being apolitical of sorts they're very hawkish um you know in 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 their own special way. I can't say that for me at Benghazi yet and I hate the fact that I'm saying I'm doing that thing that I hate other people for doing going. I haven't seen it yet but but looking at his other films, I let's just say I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a very cut and dry look at you know, army and war and warfare. As opposed to Peter Berg, who is just as glitzy as um as Bay when he wants to be but brings across you know at least a certain slightly naive but at least he brought, brings a certain aspect about it which is quite interesting in um the kingdom which i you know i did quite i did quite enjoy i thought it was going to be kind of kind of a plain movie but i actually thought it was way better than i i expected um but i think that comes with time i think the interesting thing about films is um some films is you do need that space between them from um, maybe an immediate reaction, and especially when you look at what they're talking about. And
1: I mean, just to um, I suppose round off this part, what are our kind of favourite um, modern war films? I'm a big fan of, of Jarhead, which is released a fair while ago now, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, um, who will come on to one of our other, our next film that we're going to review later. Incidentally, but I always thought Jarhead was was um, really good and perhaps a good and more accurate portrayal of how a soldier actually copes in war or in that kind of war environment and after the war or not after the war but after they've finished their part in it
2: well yeah I think the thing about Jarhead I think it, it kind of it's one of the films that shows that this is about people on all aspects it doesn't really show the enemy but it shows You know what's affecting us on 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 the allied side the so-called winning side and what you have to come back home to and what happens there Uh, another film that strangely um tries to show that kind of sobering effect is um monsters dark continent which is strange because it's a sci-fi film um but as a war film, you can see what it was trying to do, and trying to use uh, the aliens as metaphor for that sort of aspect, and trying to say that there are real, there's you know, there's a real innocence that's being lost in this, which kind of harks back to, like I was saying, films like um, *Paths of Glory* or the anti-war films of Kubrick um, and whatnot, and they're a little less gung ho. For me, I think. One of the most interesting um, war films is actually a documentary that came out last year. Um, it didn't get a big release, and unfortunately, it did get a release. I'm not sure if it was DVD release or cinematic release, which came out around the same time as the Paris attacks, and it was called "Tell Spring Not to Come This Year," um, and it was a documentary about. Um, what happens to what uh, what happened to the afghanistan um, uh, army after the troops from america and britain had left and it's an unbelievably sobering tale about what happens to you know what you know this massive vacuum of what happens afterwards we say that we're going to bring all this training we say that we're going to do this and that and the other but what actually happens is a kind of, oh, well, we've we've secured what we needed and we leave. That's what the documentary pertains to. But it would be very interesting to watch along the lines of something like um, the Pat Tillman story, another interesting uh, war documentary, and um, Taxi to the Dark Side. All very interesting films um, which kind of give a little bit more truth and a little bit more sobering effect on everything. And actually very troubling because you're seeing real faces and and real victims and and what happens to them sorry i'm I'm making this a bit of a downer <laughs> um, I mean one thing I would love to see is considering there was a lot of talk in the last year about um the conservatives selling arms to Saudi Arabia and and the whole aspects of human rights and 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 that going on and I I I don't want to go to delve too much into uh, the people who are listening their political um, leanings and whatnot. But it would be quite interesting to have a whole bunch of people go back and watch something like Lord of War with Nicolas Cage, um, directed by um, Andrew Nichol. Um I can't remember when it came out, um, but the idea of you know seeing a, a gun runner and seeing what happens, you know that opening sequence of the, the the journey of a bullet would be very interesting to see with a lot of people um, a lot of political parties just, just to see what they would say as opposed to anything else whether they would just clam up and they would go very political and and you know very and the media training would kick in or whether or not someone would actually turn around and go oh my goodness, is, why have I never seen this movie? What's going on? That's what I would like to see. I would like more films that kind of delve into... I don't need to necessarily see the the truth but I would like to see how the politics would... you know, the murkiness of the politics and how difficult and how troubling that actually is. Let's not um uh, attack our, uh, the leaders too much be be it Blair or Cameron. I'm guessing they do have very hard jobs, but um I think it's one of those things when where it's like you I do want to see the the films that make you wonder if they ever how they sleep at night, probably on a big bed of money um and i mean that I mean that both labor and conservative believe me <laughs> um. They all want us dead. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what I would like to see. So, uh, some feedback then from
1: Twitter for favourite modern warfare films. We've got at Andrew. Uh, we've got at Brooker four one one. That's Andrew Brooker. Uh, Lone Survivor, despite the spoilery title, Jarhead, Black Hawk Down, and the Hurt Locker. Emma Platt at Dead Meat. Emma, Lord of War. Matt Latham is X and Matt uh, Not American Sniper which he repeats three times so I'm guessing he's not a fan of that one (laughs) and Student Film Review which is at Stu Film Review until Rainbow Six is made it'd have to be Patriot Games uh, and Splinter Cells coming out next year so that'll be good that looks like it's two adaptations of video games to the big screen which does have a patchy track record at best
2: hmm We'll Um, we'll have to see. I'm very worried about any video game becoming a movie. As someone who bought Super Mario Brothers to try and write about it, (laughs) a braver man than most.
1: (laughs) So it's once again time for us to pick a flick. Donnie Darko is a 2001 America fantasy drama film written and directed by Richard Kelly. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Jenna Malone, Drew Barrymore, Mary McDonnell, uh, Catherine Ross, Patrick Swayze, Noah Weil and Maggie Gyllenhaal. The film follows the adventures of the troubled Tetula character as he seeks the meaning behind his doomsday related visions. Budgeted with $4.5 million and filmed over the course of 28 days, Donnie Darker grossed just under $7.7 million worldwide. It received positive reviews and avert the cult following resulting in the release of a director's cut on a two disc special edition DVD in 2004.
2: Ling Ling finds a wallet on the ground filled with money. She takes the wallet to the address on the driver's license but keeps the money inside the wallet. <sighs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Miss Farmer. I don't get this.
0: Just place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place.
2: No, I mean, I, I know what to do. I just... I don't get this. You can't just lump things into two categories. Things aren't that simple.
0: The lifeline is divided that way.
2: Well, life isn't that simple. I mean, y- who cares if Ling Ling... Returns the wallet and keeps the money. Has nothing to do with either fear or love.
0: Fear and love are the deepest of human emotions.
2: Okay. But you're not listening to me. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else.
0: If you don't complete the assignment, you'll get a zero for the day.
3: Donald... Let me preface this by saying that your Iowa test scores are... intimidating. So... let's go over this again. What exactly did you say to Ms. Farmer?
0: I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the lifeline exercise carton to my anus. (laughs)
1: Now, my biggest memory before a rewatch of Donnie Darko was it came out when I was 14 or 15 and everyone at school was watching it and pretend, pretending to be really cool and clever by understanding it and none of us knew what was going on. <laughs> and, and, I, and I still don't know if I do now. I think I've got a slightly better grasp on what was happening than I did when I was 15. But, yeah, I just remember everyone trying to be, oh, have you seen Donnie Darko? Oh, it's all about this. And when you think back, you think, we didn't have a clue. We, we really didn't know what was going on
2: <laughs> I remember the second time I watched it um I I won't lie I was a bit of an unabashed I was in college at the time and I was a bit of an unabashed Donnie Darko fiend um I went to London to see it the first time the second time I think I watched it at college and then the third time I watched it at a cinema in Henley um I remember taking um going with um it was a big group of us and there were some girls and everyone all the blokes came out and were going yeah you know so you know look at the the complexity of it all and this that and the other and the girls were like it's not that complex no it's fine basically you know and they just went over the end he did this because he did this because of this and I was like oh right okay fine fair enough they hit the nail on the head while everyone else was looking at um, more complex aspects (laughs) Um, I love the film I watched it six times at the cinema when I first when I, when, it, when it first came out, and rewatching it just reminded me of some really nice memories. It's just a fantastic coming of age story. I have a lot of time for that movie. I have a lot of time for the performances. I think it kind you know it's interesting to see that the theatrical version is far more interesting than the director's cut. I think there is something interesting about that that mystery about it um, I also think that some of the, the music choices that we know of in the theatrical cut are so important, they, they're they now kind of engraved onto fans' brains, so the idea that the director went and changed all that is kind of hard but then again with that said, we've all been down that road with Blade Runner, haven't we? So Yeah, I, I really love the film Kelly's an interesting subject. Um, he is someone that I think—I mean, I could go into the history of of, of of the film from what I remember. Quite, you know, like quite easily. I remember. You know it was at a time where you'd go to movie websites and go, "Oh my God, what is this website about?" If you go it's still on the archives, it's still there in flash and it's got all these clues and what actually on what actually happened quote unquote and and everything but Kelly himself, I think the interesting thing for me is when Donnie darker came out it came out in um it came out on two thousand and one came out very soon around around the time of nine nine eleven um, in America and because of that it kind of got I'm not sure if it got delayed or it just didn't make that much money because obviously there is a there there is a plane that <laughs> crashes um, so in terms of sensibilities they, they looked around and see what they could do when we got it here in England it was 2002 and um, it came out to big fanfare and it was I don't know what it was, but it was something about what when it was released in England and the amount of people they watched in England that made people kind of stand up and go, hang on a minute, and it, a lot of people su- suggest that the success it, it was in England in terms of, it wasn't out on many screens, but when it was out on screens, people went to watch it, um, was quite interesting, and it obviously gave enough so um Kelly could go back and make the director's cut and give it more explanation. I don't necessarily feel that you have to get films all the time um, in order to enjoy them. And I also feel that you don't have to get films to dislike them. And it's one of those things on where the film, came, the film came out and people were kind of happy with what they had seen and this director's cut comes out with all this explanation and more talk about the 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 philosophy of time travel and all this stuff and from what I heard is the film is a for for many fans is a lesser film for it to 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 kind of cut the short story short a couple of years after um I think it's 2007 yeah it was about six years sorry after around 2006 2007 maybe 2005 Kelly went out and with his magnum opus which is uh, Southland Tales which is three hours long and if you feel if you felt confused about Donnie Darko my god this film has got it's it's overkill it's there's too many plot strands there's too many things I've watched it three times I still don't get it it's three hours long it wanted to be this big interactive multi-media thing with comic books and the rocks in it and he's the lead character and he's trying to he's running around with Sarah Michelle Gellar who's a porn actress and there's all this stuff about crude oil and marketed wars and all this stuff and you just get the feeling that he's really Kelly was really angry about all this stuff and he wanted to try and put it out on paper as an artist and it just doesn't work. I think one thing one of the reasons why Donnie Darko works as well as it did with so many people is the through line was very simple. No matter what the time travel and the sci-fi was about that didn't matter because it was about this boy and him growing up and his self-sacrifice and all those aspects whereas he Kelly went on to do Southland Tales and if you, uh, allegedly if you go on Twitter and you speak to, to Richard Kelly and go, what was this aspect of Southland Tales about, he'll tell you exactly what it's about but, you know you don't explain a good joke it just it just works and I think that's one thing that I find that works really well with Donnie Darko is the little moments there's a fanta- fantastic moment in the film where um Johnny goes to his mum what's it like to have a psycho as a son and she she just goes it's wonderful and it's such a small and sensitive moment that I really I really love it's those little things that I think worked really well for the movie I love the fact that it it still looks really good now considering that it was you know it was only 4.5 million and they had to you know ask for some favours from some people in order to get you know um, the 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 effects and and everything i i i i think it's a really sensitive movie and i think it it captures the era well i think it does capture that kind of weirdness with Dukakis and reagan and 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 that aspect and this t this kind of tv family dealing with something that even nowadays you know mental health that we don't deal with very well but these are all very grounded things that we can deal with. Something that Southland Tales doesn't do very well. And then Kelly went on to do The Box in 2009, which is based on a Richard Matheson, I think it's based on a Richard Matheson short story, which, and I think, um called Button Button, I think it was a Twilight Zone episode, with James Marston and um, Cameron Diaz, and it didn't work out very well, it didn't, you know, once again, it's... Uh, it's a bit overkill. It goes a little bit. It takes something that is quite simple and it just ploughs it with all this other, all these other plot strands that kind of go to nowhere. If you're not really interested, I think Donnie Darko works because it's so simple, as well as being com- complex. I, I think. I f- think
1: part of the enjoyment of Donnie Darko and films of its ilk are trying to understand it, trying to work out what exactly going on, why it's happening, what what it's all about. And then discussing it with other people who've seen it afterwards. Yeah. It's one of those kind of films where people interpret different things in different ways. And it is it's enjoyable to talk about what you got from it if you think other people are right or wrong or if they if they agree with you or whatever. Or if you know, or if you talk about it with them and then realise that, hang on, I've been completely wrong from the start.
2: I, I'm not sure about right or wrong. I think the thing that got me about the film was how I felt afterwards. Um, I feel it was just the emotion. I think for the last fifteen years, we've been kind of uh, modern movies have kind of spoon-fed plot to us, and there's reasons. You know, there's reasons why when you look at Marvel movies, and I'm not. Arguing against Marvel movies so much, I'm just you know I'm just making a point that there's so much going on in these movies and there's so many plot strands and everything else like that. What happens is you've got the dialogue and dialogue is going. We need to do this in order to do this in order to do this. Screenplays have become very streamlined, and instead of giving you some any sort of ambiguity, they seem to just tell you what's happening and how and how it is resolved very simply Um the idea of ambiguity kind of falls out of you know you, you're you not getting that anymore unless you're kind of watching something like from Christopher Nolan and even then you know people are like oh well why has he done that why is it an open-ended ending and I think that's one thing you know Donnie Darko does quite well it is quite ambiguous but I think one of the things I liked about it is I just felt for the character that's that's really nice i it's 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 really nice to turn around and i i think one reason why i think a lot of people liked it we were all roughly around that age or or maybe a little bit younger you know heading towards adolescence and he kind of consolidated a lot of things that we felt uh, about being an outsider about being um Maybe a bit geeky and, and and not fitting in, but feeling that there's something that you can do and 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 everything. It just happens to be <laughs> saving the world. <laughs> but um, it, it's. I think that's the thing that, happ- that that works. I think it's all about hole and 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 what he does and how he sells that performance. I don't think you know. I I've, I've watched it. I remember watching. I think I've watched it with my girlfriend at least once. And and when I watch stuff with my girlfriend my girlfriend is very much in a sense of at the end of stuff she's like well what happens after, what happens next if I show her something kind of ambiguous or open ended whereas I'm kind of okay with that I'm more about those characters at that moment in time and how it makes me feel at that moment in time and I think that's the best thing about the film I think it is really just a fantastic coming of age story You know, very kind of John Hughes at the best of times. Just shades of David Lynch around that time as well. There's, you know, there's just some beautiful aspects about it. And I think, interestingly, that kind of gets lost with the whole time travel stuff. But I might, you know, I might be...
1: Anything more to say on on Donnie Darko before we move on?
2: I've got a story that involves the rabbit suit. Right when the film came out um we went to london to watch it as i mentioned um we went to the Curzon and soho save the Curzon and soho it's a great cinema and we it was me, me and a friend we went and um we all a few friends we went and we loved it and it was really really good and my friend for a halloween thing made the suit like a really good version of the the rabbit suit he it was really really good. He did a really really good um, job on it, and he had it for quite a while. Now, around two thousand and four, he still had the suit, and I was like, "You still got the suit?" Said, yes. And we were working at a cinema at a time, and um, one of the people that we were working with went on a date with this girl, and it was Halloween, and we were working, we were doing the late. To which um, I hear my mate go, "I bought the suit because it's Halloween." So he puts on the suit during, I think it might have been the grudge, and he travels it's a stadium seating, so he traveled up the stairs of a packed cinema on a late show, dressed as Frank the Rabbit, <laughs> dressed as Frank the Rabbit, saying nothing to anyone as he walks up, Dead slow, really slow, up to the aisle seat where my other friend was sitting. Sits down really slow, just looks at him, asks him if he ever seen a portal. My mate is in absolute tears. He's laughing. He knows who it is and everything else like that. He then decides to get up, walk all the way down really slow again and just scare the absolute living crap out of everyone in that screen because he because no one knows who he is apart from that one person in the screen and to, to that day I wish he kept the suit I think he actually got rid of it which is a bit of a shame I think he dismantled it but my god just the it was back at a time when you could do stuff like that in a, in a cinema and you know people wouldn't mind too much but you know I, I strongly urge anyone who works at a cinema who listens to this to fight, make yourself a Franklin Rabbit suit and you know come October or come any late show horror film to do something fun like that but that was my story I, I didn't mean to sell it better than it actually was
1: <laughs> and for the nomination of Donnie Darker we've got Jacob Barnes who is on Twitter at uh, JumpCutJacob Cut Jacob for, for that one Right before we uh, finish this week's uh, pick a flick, we've got the quiz, which will focus on the two films as our, uh, which were our main reviews. Question one: As the Jordanian informant enters Camp Chapman in Zero Duck Thirty, what can be seen cutting across his path?
2: Oh God, I can't remember.
1: It was. I'll give you a clue. Then it was a kind of animal. Oh, was it a monkey? No, it was a black cat. Okay. Uh, question 2, name the song in Donnie Darko playing as he rides his bike. Um killing moon? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen. The question 3, who was originally cast as a main role in Zero Dark Thirty before dropping out to be replaced by Jessica Chastain?
2: Oh god. Um Was uh can we do clues? Um, I don't really know how to do
1: a clue for this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wanting to
2: know if, if it was a male or female. That's all. It's a female. It's female. Um, just it was, uh, Julianne Moore.
1: No, it was Rooney Rooney Mara. Oh wow! Question four in Donnie Darko. What is the exact time Frank tells Donnie the world will end in? Oh God. So how many days, hours, minutes, seconds does Frank K <sighs> tell Donny the World 28
2: wedding? days, 14 hours, uh, 12 minutes and
1: 8 seconds. You're bright with 28 hours. Which president does someone wear a mask of at the house party or jumping on the trampoline in Donnie Darko? Reagan. That's right, correct, Yes. So yes, that's almost all for for this week's Pick a Flick, but we're all going to to plug our various other websites and blogs and podcasts now,
2: so... Um, You can find me at afrofilmviewer.com I'm usually talking nonsense there. Um, I've also got a... Um, a cinema podcast. Um, it's a six-episode cinema podcast at the moment. Um, we're on episode five, um, called "Cinematic Dramatic," and we've also got loads of um, previous episodes before. Um, and that's um, on iTunes. Um, I can also be found on Lon- London Economic and Geek Planet Online,
1: and I am part of Failed Critics, which is uh, www.failedcritics.com or at Failed Critics on Twitter I'm at Failed Steve my own account and we are a, a weekly film podcast reviewing new films we do, we do specials Hall of Fame that kind of thing as well and articles going up on the, the website sporadically um, and this has been Pick A Flick which you can follow on Twitter at Pick A Flick Pod also on iTunes, Acast and Stitcher where you can find this podcast. Obviously you're listening to it so you know where to find it but if you could leave a review that would be excellent and follow us on Twitter. We're always looking for feedback, comments and recommendations for what films to watch on the podcast itself. Mm